John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. In this particular section, Jesus uses an agricultural parable known as the vine and the branches to illustrate an important truth. The fact that true disciples abide in him and bear fruit. Now, Jesus was likely walking by the great golden vine that decorates the holy place of the temple when he taught this parable, or he was walking by any of the other vines that surround kind of the interior of the walls of the city. Jesus would often grab a hold of something in nature or in the geography or in the, in the area, and he would use that to illustrate or to teach a parable. And for instance, I believe when he taught the parable of the sower and the seeds, they were, he was in Galilee at the time that he taught that, which is the farming region. He was probably looking out at farmers planting seeds and getting their, you know, setting up for harvest. And I want to give you just um, some descriptors real quick so that you can kind of track along. In this particular parable, the true vine is Jesus. The vine dresser is the father. The branches are the disciples, his disciples, the 11, as well as all true disciples or all true believers. And then fruit, of course, refers to the fruits of the Spirit, or as MacArthur put it, fruit may also be defined as holy, righteous, God-honoring behavior in general. So let's pick it up at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus begins his parable by identifying himself as the true vine, and he identifies his Father as the vine dresser. Now, before we dive into the parable, I need you to take notice of the phrase, I am. I am the true vine. This is the seventh and final I am statement in John's gospel. So John literally has recorded in his gospel seven times where Jesus says, I am, where he begins some kind of teaching or something. And when Jesus says, I am, and we've gone over this, but it's good to refresh your memories because it's been a bit since we've seen one. Whenever he said, I am, he was essentially declaring his deity. Because I am is one of the names of God, Exodus 3, 1 through 17. You're probably familiar with the burning bush and God speaking through the bush to Moses. And Moses says, well, who am I going to tell the Israelites who sent me? And he says, I am. Tell them I am sent you. And so what Jesus does is whenever he says I am, he's basically declaring himself to be the one who is speaking to Moses through the bush. I am God is what he is saying. And he was also not only declaring his deity, but he was declaring his total and absolute sufficiency in particular matters. For instance, if, if he said I am and then he would state a fact, he was basically stating his absolute sufficiency in regards to that fact that he stated. Uh, for, for example, in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life meaning he is the only one who can satisfy people spiritually. In other words, he's the only sufficient spiritual resource that can satisfy people spiritually. You're not going to find it through 
Buddha. You're not going to find it through Allah. You're not going to find it through, uh, what, what are people into today, yoga? Man, yoga is everywhere today. I keep thinking yogurt, it's yoga. Uh, if you're into yoga, I don't mean to be offensive, but you know, you're not going to be spiritually satisfied through that. You might become really limber. That's the extent of it. But in any case, he says it there because he wants to convey the ultimate reality that he is not only God, but he is the only one that can satisfy spiritually. He's the bread that satisfies. Or in John 14, verse 6, we studied that. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, meaning he is the only way to heaven. He is the true source of all truth, especially in regards to salvation. And he is the only one who can grant or give eternal life. I am God, and I am the only sufficient one who can do those things. And basically what you see here in verse 1 of chapter 15 is Jesus doing it again. I am the true vine, meaning he is the source that supplies spiritual life to his people and causes them to bear spiritual fruit. That's his sufficiency. Now let's focus on the word true for a moment. It not only reflects Jesus' total sufficiency, right? Because something that is true is totally sufficient, totally accurate. Not only does the word true reflect his total sufficiency, as we've already talked about, it reflects his preeminence, his preeminence. Over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel is portrayed as God's vine or God's vineyard. This is a a repeating theme in the Old Testament. But the truly extraordinary thing about the use of this image in the Old Testament is that it is always brought forward as a symbol of Israel's degeneration rather than her fruitfulness. In other words, whenever you see it appear in the Old Testament, it's not a positive thing. For example, in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only sour grapes. Israel, the the vine of God, is the reference here. God established Israel. God established the holy city on a hill, and when he looked to it, To find good fruit, he found only sour grapes. And this is because Israel, over and over again throughout their history, had given herself over to idolatry. And in those modes of disobedience and idolatry, was not producing the right kind of fruit. Instead of bearing sweet grapes, righteousness, she was bearing sour grapes, iniquity, sin, transgression. In the same passage in Isaiah, God prophesied that he would destroy her vineyard, and this is precisely what he did later on. He sent Nebuchadnezzar into Jerusalem three times, and Nebuchadnezzar and his army decimated the city, destroyed the temple, and carted out all of the people, brought them back to Babylon for 70 years. Many of you know the story. You've read the book of Daniel. You've read the prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah. The fact of the matter is, 
Israel has never been a consistently fruitful vine. Jesus, however, is perfectly obedient to God's commands. He obeyed everything that God commanded. In terms of fruitfulness, he is preeminent above Israel and all others. He is literally in a class of his own. And this is why he is the true vine. He's not the same kind of vine as Israel. He's the true vine because he is perfectly fruitful, perfectly faithful, unlike Israel. And Jesus here was, in a sense, reminding his disciples of Israel's failure as a vineyard and and teaching them not to trust in their lineage, not to bank on their heritage, but to trust in him alone. This was a massive problem for Jewish people in Jesus' day. It's a massive problem for them today. Now, the Pharisees had this problem big time in Jesus' day. They were, I'd like to say, banking on their bloodline. They thought that being from Abraham's lineage would save them. They thought, we're the true seed of Abraham. We're guaranteed salvation. They thought being from Israel would save them. In fact, they looked down on other Jews who were from the diaspora who were born in other areas, born in parts of the Roman Empire or in Syria or wherever. Even though they were Jewish, they looked down on them because they weren't born in Israel. They weren't living in Israel. And Jesus, from time to time, warned his own disciples who were Jewish to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. And most of the time we think of their hypocrisy, but that's not always what the leaven is. The leaven could be just that way of thinking that you're okay because of your heritage. You're okay because of your lineage. If we think having Christian parents will save us, we are wrong. Boy, I I had to really pound this into the heads of junior hires when I was just a youth, you know, minister, youth pastor, that they they would just be living off of their parents' faith and That's an impossibility. There's no such thing as living off someone else's faith. Now, a parent can influence because of their faith a child, and that's precisely what they're called to do. But that kid's never going to be saved because of mommy's faith. If we think that being American will save us, we are wrong. And there's a great number of quote-unquote evangelicals who think that today. Well, we were born in the promised land, America. We're saved. We're Protestant. They checked the box during the census. What are you? Never been to church once, maybe once in their entire life. Somebody brought them to a Christmas program they hid in the bathroom the whole time. And when census comes around, they check the box. It says Protestant. Why? Because we went to a Protestant church. We certainly didn't go to a Catholic thing. So I am a Protestant. Why? I was born in America, and I went to a Protestant church. Having Christian parents, wonderful blessing, huge blessing, not going to save you. Being from America, more than likely, will damn you more than anything else. A nation of millions of abortions and every kind of form of evil. We make the Roman Empire look like romper room. You're not going to be saved because you were born in America. In fact, the odds, I know this sounds crazy, I don't want to attack God's sovereignty, but I would say the odds are stacked against you because America has so many forms of false religion people are clinging to and trusting in. Every kind of false religion exists here. In fact, this is the hub of most false religion in the world. 
And then they send missionaries out into Africa and these places to infect them with our false religion. It's really sick and sad. And it, you just got to know that this... Is, is it advantageous to be born in America? Yeah, because in other countries you're being harassed and, and whatever just for being a citizen. There's, there's advantages here. We, we have a constitution. We have, you know, some things that are under attack, but, but man, it's, it's, it's also not to your advantage because of the various, the 31 flavors of religion. Baskin Robbins. I mean, it's just unbelievable. You're not going to be saved because you're born here. The fact is, sinners are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, in accordance with Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. That's how people are saved. Their ethnicity has nothing to do with it. The place that they were born has nothing to do with it. Human lineage and national heritage have literally nothing to do with it. And I think Jesus is trying to convey this to them once more. I am the true vine. Don't trust in Israel. Trust in me. You need to believe in me. And these guys did believe in him. They didn't understand him completely. They had some issues with parts of the gospel, but for the most part, they believed he was their Messiah. Notice also how Jesus identified the Father's role. In the Old Testament, the Father is represented as the proprietor of the vine or the owner, but here he is called the vine dresser. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus describes how the vine dresser cares for the branches of the vine. All right, now look at 2 and 3 with me. Jesus says this to them, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, speaking of the vine dresser, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And then he says this in verse 3, very interesting statement. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now the first thing we need to do is we need to repair part of the English translation here. We need, to, we need to fix it. Oh, is he promoting the idea of fixing the Bible? Well, actually the Bible is perfect, but some of our English translations don't quite word things the way that they should be worded doesn't mean your Bible's fraught with error. It isn't. Sometimes our English translations, I think, confuse us more than bring about the reality of what Jesus said. And the Greek root word for takes away is airo, A-I-R-O. Some people call it arrow. I have a Greek pronunciation device on my computer, airo. So if you call it arrow, repent and be baptized. Iro is the correct pronunciation, and it can also be translated in another way. In other words, it can be translated as takes away, but it can also be translated into English as lifted up. And you can see that version of it in Luke 17, 3, John eleven forty one. Very interesting that it's used in John in that way, and we're studying John. And then, of course, over in Acts 4, 24. Now, for some strange reason, our English translators went with takes away rather than lift it up. And this, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others who study the word, creates a bit of a conundrum or confusion. It makes this verse sound like the branches there, those who are in Christ, will be taken away and cast out by the vine dresser, the Father, if they fail to bear spiritual fruit. 
Just give that verse a cursory reading. Does it not sound like, well, I'm in Christ, and if I experience a time of fruitlessness, then the Father, the vine dresser, is going to cast me out. Is that not the way that it seems to be worded in the English? Yes. It makes it sound like salvation can be lost. It makes it sound like things like eternal security is nothing more than a pipe dream. In fact, the adversaries of God's sovereignty and salvation, like Arminians and Semi-Pelagians and Pelagians, these are theological terms for groups of people that deny you know, God's sovereignty and salvation, they actually use this verse to support their position. Look, you can be a branch, and then you can be a branch that doesn't bear fruit. You can be torn out and thrown out, cast away by the Father. Well, if that's true, then we don't have any eternal security, and we better do a better job of bearing fruit, or else we're going to lose our salvation. If it's true that if I'm a branch, I'm a real branch, I'm a real believer, and I experience a time of fruitlessness for some reason, something happens, I kind of lose my discipline, I give it up a little bit or whatever, I'm just not very fruitful, I can be cast out, then that contradicts a ton of Scripture. In fact, you may as well peel John 6 out of the Bible and throw it away and burn it. Because all it does is talk about eternal security. And the Bible never contradicts itself. Never. We contradict the Bible because we fail to understand what has been said in any particular passage or we, we divorce it from its context and run hog wild with it. The Bible never contradicts itself. It does not teach eternal security in one place and the lack thereof in another place. It always affirms what it clearly teaches. And here things aren't as clear as they should be because of the English translation. fact is the Father will never take those who are in Christ away from Christ. Never will he take a true branch away from the true vine. That, that would make the Father an Indian giver. Even when we experience bouts of fruitlessness, I mean, the inference here is that, man, if I just don't maintain perfect fruitfulness at all times, if, if, if everything I say is not perfectly fruitful and every behavior that I do is, is not fruitful, then I'm going to be torn out of Christ and thrown away. That is insane to think. Can you imagine trying to actually be a Christian at all or live for Christ or do anything with, under the constant threat of being torn away from him and thrown into fire or whatever? I don't know about you, I'd just go back to the world. That was easier than trying to play religion. No, the fact is salvation cannot be lost. Eternal security is not a pipe dream. It is a reality. What did Jesus say back in John 6, 37 to 39? Listen to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Firstly, the Father is a giver, not a taker, when it comes to Christ. He gives and he gives, but he does not take away. He never takes away from his Son. And he says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, once you're a branch, you're a branch. And he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, referencing the vine dresser, the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will actually raise them all up on the last day. So if, if verse 2 means that, that those who were given to Christ can be taken away and cast out, then what does that mean for 6, 37 to 39? 
somebody's lying somewhere. There's a contradiction. So, Verse 2 can't be translated in that way, the idea of taking away that which has been given to Christ. You cannot translate it that way. You cannot interpret it that way. Because then you have a problem with John 6 and all, just tons of passages. And plus this, did you know that the Father has rendered and given all judgment to Jesus? John 5.22, which means what? He does not judge or render judgments against those who are in Christ. Think about that. Again, the the wrong interpretation. We're in Christ. We're failing to bear fruit. We're pulled out. That means the Father's making judgments and then renders an an expedited, immediate judgment and rips us from him and casts us out. And yet, 5.22 of John says that the Father does not even judge. Jesus is the judge of the universe. Jesus is the judge of his church. Judgment, in fact, begins where? In the house of the Lord, with Christ. Now, if our English translators had, and and you see this in almost every, probably every English translation, I checked a few of them, but if if they had simply gone with lifted up instead of takes away, the confusion would be avoided, the enemies of God's sovereignty and salvation would have one less fiery dart in their arsenal. This verse should be rendered as such. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. The father, the vine dresser, lifts up. Now think about this. If a branch came loose in a vineyard and it it falls to the ground, excessive moisture, insects, whatever, will destroy the fruit. And sometimes branches do come loose and fall because they've got so much fruit on them they get too heavy. And sometimes they don't have any fruit on them at all and they come loose and fall to the ground. They kind of lean and lay on the ground. And whenever a branch would go to the ground, it was just a matter of time before it was useless. If it had fruit on it, the insects would wipe out the fruit and the moisture would cause the fruit to get moldy. The branch itself would get too much moisture. You'd have issues. And the branch itself would begin to die as well as the fruit on it. And a vine dresser, one who takes care of a vineyard, think of a gardener. That person would walk up and down the rows in the vineyard looking for fallen branches, looking for signs of trouble. And when he found a fallen branch, he would restore it to its proper place and position, tie it off so that it could not fall again. That's what a vine dresser would do. He would lift up. This is the context. This is what Jesus is saying. There may have been somebody there dressing vines right there when he said it. You see what that guy's doing? That's what the Father does. So the parallel Jesus sought to make is this. When we, the branches, enter a period, a moment, or a moment of fruitlessness, because it can happen. It can happen. When this happens to us, the Father The vine dresser comes to our aid and he lifts us up and he restores us in such a way in close fellowship with Jesus so that we can begin to bear fruit once more like we did before. And that's another thing with this text. It's not that this branch has never produced fruit. It's the idea in verse 2 that he was or she was for a while and kind of stopped. Now, how does the father, how does the vine dresser do this for branches for 
true believers, for disciples. He, he does it through the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit. It's part of the Father's ministry to us through that divine minister called the Holy Spirit. Name the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us. He teaches us. He manifests the spiritual presence of Jesus in us. He's what makes us aware that the Lord Jesus is close to us. The fact of the matter is every believer experiences fallen to the ground, fruitless moments. Every one of us. It's almost to the point that if you deny that about yourself, you deny the fact that you're a sinner and that you have the propensity to do that. And then in 1 John, you're a liar. None of us are Jesus. Jesus is the only perfect one. He's the true vine. We're branches. But boy, we're problematic branches at times, aren't we? We're prone to disobedience. We're prone to rebellion. We're prone to sin. Some of us go through lengthy periods of fruitlessness. The good news is, is that our Father is always watching. He's always ready to lift us up and restore us. If we will simply confess our sins, He will restore our close fellowship with the Lord Jesus and we will begin to bear spiritual fruit once again. According to Jesus, this isn't the only thing the vine dresser does. He also prunes, it says, the fruit-bearing branches so that they will bear even more fruit. Those of you who are familiar with taking care of plants and fruit trees and all that know that if you don't prune your orange tree every year, you'll still get fruit on it, but if you prune it, you'll get a lot more. In fact, you'll have so much more, there'll be piles of it and baskets of it in that room in there, and it turns into penicillin because nobody here takes it. I don't know how many times I've gone in there and seen lemons all over the place or oranges or dragon fruit. Now, I don't think we even have that here. I don't even know what that is. But in any case, if you trim things back every year, you tend to get a greater harvest, right? Well, I don't think that's what Jesus was speaking about here. I know it says prunes, but I have issue with that word too. I do. The Greek verb for prunes here is kathairo, which means to cleanse, to wash, to scrub. And you're thinking, I've never seen anyone wash or scrub a vineyard. The idea here is that the, the vine dresser uses water to remove impurities such as insect deposits, moss, and other parasites which infest the branches. Okay, so, so yeah, so a vine dresser will not only trim things back to get more fruit in the next season, but they will take, if they see a, if they see a branch that's, that's infected by a parasite or moss or something, how do you trim moss off? How do you remove insect deposits? You have to wash them. And so the idea here is that the vine dresser goes around looking for fallen branches to restore them, lift them up, and looking to prune some to trim them back so they'll bear more fruit. And importantly as well is to, is to go around and look and see what branches are being attacked by this or that and to wash them off, to clean them off, to give them a little sponge bath. The spiritual parallel is this. Our Father, the vine dresser, the divine vine dresser, uses the Word of God to cleanse and remove impurities in us so that we 
will bear even more spiritual fruit, right? That's what he means in verse 3. You've already been cleansed by my word. And by the way, the only way to be cleansed is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where forgiveness is. That's where the removal of sin is. It's in, in that divine message applied by the very Spirit of God. But here he's saying, look, you've already been cleaned. It's the idea that the Father, the vine dresser, cleans the branches with water. But what is the water? It's the water of the Word. The Word is what strips the impurity. The Word is what cuts through the marrow and, and gets into the deep recesses of who we are and convicts us and removes those, those cancers of sin and those kinds of things. It's what cleanses us. It's the Word. That's what the Father uses, the Word applied by the Spirit. I like what A.W. Pink wrote here. This is really, really good. He says, three principal thoughts are suggested here. The Father's protecting care, His eye is upon the vine and His hand tends to the weakest tendril and tenderest shoot. Then it suggests His watchfulness. Nothing escapes His eye. Just as the gardener notices daily the condition of each branch of the vine, watering, training, pruning as occasion arises, so the divine vine dresser is constantly occupied with the need and welfare of those who are joined to Christ. And lastly, it suggests his faithfulness. No branch is allowed to run to waste. He spares neither the spray nor the pruning knife. When a branch is fruitless, he tends to it. If it is bearing fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Purgeth translates as washes, cleans, purifies. Isn't that spectacular? Think of the Father's, the divine vine dresser's ministry to those branches, to us. He has a ministry to us. Wonderful. Let's move to verses 4 and 5. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Everything? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Now abide translates in the Greek as meno. And it describes something that remains where it is, something that continues in a fixed state, something that endures. And in this context, it refers to maintaining a close connection and close communion with the Lord Jesus. Pink wrote this, and I've got a couple descriptions here. To abide in Christ signifies the constant occupation of the heart with Him, a daily active faith in him. So abiding means to remain in Christ by faith, continuance in faith, to keep believing, keep trusting, keep staying in communion with him, remaining close to him. Think of abiding as that. That's precisely what Jesus means here. I like another thing that Pink says. In another section of his commentary, he defines abiding in Christ as three things. These are helpful. First, to abide in Christ is to continue in the joyful recognition of the value of his perfect sacrifice and the efficacy of his precious blood. 
To abide in Christ means to keep reflecting upon what he achieved for you, what he accomplished for you, how he died on a cross for you, and how his blood alone was sufficient to purchase and buy you out of hell, to buy you out of sin, to buy you out of the clutches of the devil, and most importantly, to purchase you away from the wrath of the Father. He says, there can be no fellowship with the Lord Jesus in the full sense while we harbor doubts of our personal salvation and acceptance with God. He says, second, to abide in Christ is to maintain a spirit and attitude of entire dependency on him. It is the consciousness of my helplessness. It is the realization that severed from him, I can do nothing. To abide in him is to depend wholly on him. And not just for your salvation, but for all that you are, all that you have, all that you plan to do, your physical life, your emotional life, your spiritual life. We're depending on him entirely. Third, to abide in Christ is to draw from his fullness. Right? He's the true vine. He says, it is not enough that I turn from myself in disgust. I must turn to Christ with delight. Oh, I love that, right? Because I've been training myself to, to turn from myself in disgust, but am I training myself to delight in the perfect one, to delight in the true vine? That's what I must do. And he says, I must seek his presence. I must be occupied with his excellency. I must commune with him. It is no longer a question of my sufficiency, my strength, or my anything. It is solely a matter of his sufficiency. We continue in joyful recognition of the value of what he accomplished for us through his blood. We maintain a spirit and attitude of absolute dependency on him in every area of our life. And we grow in those areas and learn what it means to depend on him. And we draw from his fullness because he is the true vine. And then Jesus begins to describe the primary point of our text. Abiding in Christ is a primary point. And next to that, you have this. Those who abide in him will bear fruit. That's the thrust of this parable. It has to do with abiding in Christ as a true branch, true disciple, and bearing fruit. Those who abide in Christ will bear fruit. It's an impossibility not to. That's not to say that you can't experience moments of fruitlessness. But if you're in the vine, you will bear fruit because this is the true vine. What fruit? As I said, the fruits of the Spirit, what are they? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. I like what R.C. Sproul said. The closer we stay to Christ, the more fruit we will bear. The more we wander out from the center and neglect the means of grace that he has given to us, the less fruit we will produce. Simply put, the closer we get to Christ, the more fruitful we will be. The more distance we put between us the less fruit we will produce. And the simple fact is those who do not abide in him will not bear fruit, just as an isolated branch will not bear fruit. 
And that's a parallel that Jesus makes. Man, if you're connected to me and you're close to me, you'll bear fruit. If not, you're going to be like a branch that's been disconnected, disjointed. In verse 5a, he tells his disciples very plainly that he is the vine and they are the branches. You can't get much clearer than that. And then in 5b, he reiterates his primary point, right? Whoever abides in me and vice versa, I in him, that person's going to bear much fruit. I love how it says, whoever abides in me and I in them. The idea of Jesus abiding in us is us cultivating the kind of inner spiritual life that welcomes him, that we've provided a good house for him to dwell in because we're keeping our our lives, we're, we're walking in righteousness and in holiness. Did you know that you need to do that as a believer? That's something that we have to do, that we have to be constantly checking ourselves in terms of us being an adequate, sufficient dwelling place for the Lord to dwell in, for Him to abide with us. And if our lives are a mess and full of sin and habitual this and that, we're not cultivating, we're not preparing a good place for Him to reside, are we? No, we aren't. It's not just about us abiding in Him, it's about us maintaining a godly lifestyle, a righteous lifestyle, so that he has a good welcoming home in us. And then in 5C, he issues a very, very strong warning. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And this was simply his way of saying, don't think that you can make it on your own. You can't. Because he's about to leave his disciples for a moment here, isn't he? And they've been worried about that all night so far. And now he's going to be leaving them, and they're thinking worst-case scenario. Maybe some of them are thinking like Peter, who's impetuous and kind of a tough guy, is thinking, well, I can make it. No, you can't. He might be gone, but his spiritual presence will be manifested in you and to you through the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and you better learn to rely on Him. You better learn to abide in Him because you don't have any strength. You don't have what it takes to make it. You certainly don't have what it takes to bear fruit. You must stay with the vine. That's what he's saying. Don't think that you can make it on your own. How many of us have gone into a period where we thought, I can hack it, I can do this? We felt like, we were sufficient. Let me, let me tell you how you know if you live your life like this. You don't spend a lot of time in prayer. And if you, if you just live kind of a prayer-free life and you just pray over meals and certain things, but you're not a, a, an actual person of prayer all the time, man, that just tells me you're self-dependent. Because a person who's truly dependent on Christ and abiding in Him is a prayerful person who is praying all the time. Not just over, thanks for the grub, rub-a-dub-dub, amen, Jesus. Well, it's good to pray for your food, but don't ever use the rub-a-dub one. That's just dumb. (laughs) Seriously, your prayer life is a signpost that'll tell you who you're depending on. In verse 6, Jesus reveals what happens to those who do not abide in him. He says, if anyone does not abide in me... He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, some suggest that Jesus was referring to the unfruitful works of Christians, and 
They think this and they believe this because Jesus has been talking to Christians this whole time. And they think here, well, he must be talking, he can't be talking about Christians again because Christians have eternal security. So maybe he's talking about the works of Christians and more particularly the unfruitful works that Christians do. And guys like A.W. Pink and James Montgomery Boyce make pretty good arguments for this view. I don't accept it, but they make pretty good arguments for it. They point to passages like 2 Corinthians 5.10, which speaks about the Bema seat of Christ, you know, a future judgment where believers only, their deeds that they did in the faith will be weighed, analyzed, and judged, and they will receive either rewards for their good deeds or admonishments for their bad deeds. Have you ever thought about that? That ought to prompt you to live your life in such a way. But we, we just go with all this love and grace for the believer. We don't have to worry about judgment and all that. No, you do need to be concerned about a judgment. This is not a judgment where you get cast into hell. That's a great white throne. That's another judgment of Jesus. That comes later. But there is a time coming where we will all stand before Christ and give an account for what we did with the faith. All the frivolous talk, all the frivolous activities, all of the stuff where we wasted precious time, all be brought out in the open and judged. That terrifies me. I have been frivolous with my time. Christ is not going to smite me. But do you really honestly want to stand before your Lord and Savior and say, yeah, I, I tell you, I did this and I did that and have to admit to all of this stuff? And I think it happens in a in a public setting in terms of all believers being there, you're going to have to give an account to Christ. I'm going to have to give an account. And not only that, for me, it's even more scary because I have to give an account for how I dealt with you and how I cared for you. It takes it to another level. In fact, I quit. <laughs> it should be a bit of a terrifying thing that we have to stand before our Lord and Savior, not just in, in basking in His glory and love, but we do have to give an account. We do have to give an account. These guys think that that's what Jesus is referring to here. It's this moment where believers will be judged and they'll have to give an account. And it's very, very interesting because in 1 Corinthians 3.15, it actually talks about our bad deeds, our frivolous deeds, our wasteful words, and all of those things being kind of gathered together and thrown into the fire. Isn't that interesting? Could this be what Jesus was referring to in verse 6? Yes, but I don't think so. Pink says, think of Lot. Remember Lot? His wife got turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back at the burning cities. Think of Lot. He was out of fellowship with the Lord. He ceased to bear fruit to his glory, and his dead works were all burned up in Sodom, yet he himself was saved. I've never really thought of Lot as a saved man. I mean, I've just never seen anything scripture that would indicate that he is, other than the fact that he left Sodom. And maybe that's all it takes. Maybe that's the illustration that Bunyan uses in, in his Pilgrim's Progress, you know, with, with uh, Graceless at first, who becomes Christian. Or was it Graceless? I think that was his name. But this character who leaves the city of destruction, that's kind of like what happens here, although that character in that story was a godly man. And there's actually a, a scripture in the New Testament that talks about Lot being a righteous man. But do you think of a fruitful life when you think of Lot? Do you think of a fruitful wife <laughs> when you think? It's a pillar of salt. That's not what I think of. Do, do you want to live 
like Lot? That's not the legacy I want to leave behind. You? No, heaven forbid. Others suggest that Jesus was referring to nominal Christians. Matthew Henry, Spurgeon, the Puritans, they all accept this view. Nominal Christians are churchgoers or religious people whose faith does not go beyond being identified with a church, Christian group, or denomination. They are Christians in name only. They self-identify as Christians, but it's just a label. Just as 84% of Americans claim to be Christian in the last census or two censuses ago. In other words, Christ has no bearing in their lives. They simply identify as a Christian, but there's no life there in Christ. There's no fruit there. There's certainly no abiding. There's nothing. There's no spiritual pulse. We've all met people like this, have we not? Sadly, there's a few here at this church. Terrifies me. Think of Judas Iscariot. And I believe Jesus was probably thinking of him right here when he said this. Because what? Judas was with him just a few hours earlier, and he got up from the supper table and left to go sell out Jesus. Judas walked with the Lord for three years, but he never believed in him as Lord and Savior, nor did he ever abide in him or bear any kind of fruit. He was in it for the money. He was in it for the power. He was in it for the fame. Nominal Christians like Judas are the fruitless dead branches that will be gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. They are those who are in our midst, who are only Christian in name, but there's no life in them, no Holy Spirit in them, no fruit coming in or through their lives. We walk with them. We attempt to fellowship with them, and yet they will be cast away. They are those Lord, Lord Christians, right? I will not permit you, Jesus says to them, I will not permit you to enter the kingdom of heaven, but why? Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. We prophesied, we healed people, we preached the gospel, we did all this stuff, and Jesus replies, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Those are the dead branches. I'm with Spurgeon and the others. I believe Jesus was referring to nominal Christians, fake Christians, those who simply go through the motions and tag along for the ride. They're everywhere. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, the most vital question to ask about all who claim to be Christian is this, do they have a soul thirst for God? Is their life centered on Him? Do they press forward more and more that they might know Him? Verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 7 is a promise similar to the one in chapter 14, verses 13 to 14. There... If the disciples prayed in the name of Jesus, which has to do with praying in a way that is consistent with who he is, what he did, and what he is doing in the world, their prayers would be answered in the affirmative. Here, if the disciples continue to abide in Jesus, which has to do with staying close to him, 
whatever they pray for will be done for them. Now, the idea here is that those who stay close to Jesus, those who abide in him, learn what he values and desires. And over time, their values and desires are shaped to become like his. And then they begin to pray accordingly. Now, half the time, maybe two-thirds of the time, our prayers aren't being answered because we're not praying according to his will. We don't even care what he wants. We want what we want. Well, the day that we begin to want what he wants and start to pray accordingly for that, you'll see the storehouses of heaven open to you. We need to be close to him so that we can become like him in our thoughts and processes and in our desires and values. And then we begin to pray for that which he desires and values. And boom, he's saying, look, You'll get what you pray for if that's who you are and become. And it's this kind of fruitful behavior, right? Abiding in Christ, being close to him, learning what he values and desires, and letting those values and desires become our own and praying in accordance with those things. It's that kind of fruitful behavior that glorifies the Father. That's what he says here, because it proves that we are Jesus' true disciples and that we are literally abiding in him. The Father, the vine dresser, looks upon us and says, look, they're becoming like my son. That's the goal of salvation. That kind of abiding and, and fruitful behavior glorifies the Father. It makes him happy. Now, in verses 9 to 11, Jesus does three things as we begin to wrap up. First, he reminds his disciples how much he loves them. Verse 9a, and this, I'll tell you what, this little verse is, it's transcendent. In verse 9a, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The love that the Father has has for the Son, which is immeasurable, is the exact same love that the Son has for true disciples. The exact same level and quality and force of love. If you ever struggle with sensing the love of God, and that can really mess things up for us. If you ever struggle with being loved or sensing the love of God, you go to verse 9a of chapter 15 and you look at it, it says it. So he reminds them of how much he loves them. Secondly, he exhorts his disciples to remain in his love. Verse 9b, he switches it a little bit, right? Abide in me earlier, now he says, abide in my love. Remain in my love. Cling to my love. Swim in my love. His love, the love of Christ, that is what does it. That is what moves us to anything. That is what, that is what drives us. Abide in my love, fellas. Stay in me. Stay in my love. Let love be the source of your power and strength. Know that I love you as the Father loves me. Remain in that love. I tell you, that's, that's going to be the fight of our lives. It's to remember that he loves us in this immeasurable way and to abide in his love, right? That's a battle for us. It's a battle to remember. It's a battle to abide in his love. We can always tell when we're not because we become filled with insecurity, racked with fears and these sorts of things. Thirdly, he 
identifies two fruits that abiding believers will bear. If you're a real branch, a true believer, a true disciple, you're in Christ, you're abiding in Him, you're staying close to Him, here's a couple fruits that will come right through your life. A, the fruit of obedience. Verse 10 If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, I have a difficult time with the way that that's worded again. I think it should be reversed. If you abide in my love, you will keep my commandments. Not if you obey my commandments, I'll love you. That's works righteousness. Man, I think it ought to be in the reverse. Abide in my love and you will keep my commandments, right? Because what? Love produces what? Obedience. Three times we analyze that in chapter 14. If you love me, you will obey me. If you truly love me, you will obey me. In other words, love love will produce obedience to my commands. And that's one of the ways you distinguish a false disciple from a true disciple. False disciples say they love Jesus, but there's no obedience. True disciples say they love Jesus and prove it through obedience to his commands. In many ways, this text is is, is a litmus test. All the way up to chapter 16, verse 4, he names all these things, the marks of a true disciple. The fruit of obedience, that's going to come through you. You're going to be an obedient, a humble, obedient Christian when you abide. That's the fruit that comes out of it. Secondly, the fruit of joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And it's not just his joy, it's the fullness of his joy. He says that your joy may be full. If we abide in Christ, we're going to bear the fruits of the Spirit, love, peace, patience, all those things I listed. You're going to be an obedient true disciple. You're going to be a joyful true disciple. One of the ways that you know that you're not abiding is that your joy level has gone down. Right? If you're just the kind of Christian who's been baptized in prune juice and you're ticked off and pessimistic all the time and always upset, Phil Baker, did I just say that? Yeah. Man, there's something wrong, Phil. If you're close to the source of your love, That love ought to so impact you that you become loving and obedient and joyful. See, my biggest issue is I got my eyes on too many other churches and what other people are doing. I need to stop looking at what they're doing and focus on what we're doing. Because if you just keep looking at what everyone else is doing with all this flash in the pan circus acts, and you're a pastor like me, you're going to be stressed out. I need to worry about me. And I need this joy, I need this obedience, I need to abide. I'm just telling you, if you abide in Him and in His love, man, you're going to have a fruitful life. There's going to be so much fruit coming out of you, other Christians are going to be jealous and envious, and they're going to be unfruitful because of the things they say about you. And the lost world's going to get ticked off at you. Closing. i got a handful of questions for for us this morning, are we abiding in Christ? I mean, it just makes sense to ask that question. If so, what? Our lives will be characterized by what? Fruit. What fruit? The fruits of the Spirit. Do we, another question, do we understand how much Christ loves us 
And are we abiding in his love? And maybe we can't fully comprehend that level and depth of love, but I tell you, I've experienced it. It changes my life. Man, if we're doing that, if we're abiding in him, we're abiding in his love, the fruits of the Spirit are going to be coming through us. Our lives will be characterized by obedience. They'll be characterized by the fullness of his joy. If we have repented of our unbelief and are now trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but our spiritual lives have grown cold and become fruitless, it's obviously because we are not close to Jesus right now. That's the point of this whole text. We aren't abiding in him. And you know what? We need to figure out why. We, we, need, to, we need to analyze ourselves. We need to test ourselves. We need to evaluate ourselves. Man, if I've got a joyless life, I'm not very obedient. The fruits of the Spirit aren't being manifested there, but I know that I've repented and I'm trusting in Him. He's my only Lord and Savior, but my life has just become somewhat fruitless here and kind of stale and dry. You know, what's up with that? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Is it because we are entangled in a particular sin right now? You know, we're wrapped up in something that we keep visiting on the internet and looking at. We're doing things with our boyfriend or girlfriend that we ought not be doing. I mean, ask yourself. Is it because we aren't getting into the Word regularly and or spending time communing with Jesus in prayer? Boy, will that ever do it. Man, you don't have to be engaged in all kinds of crazy sin. You can be walking a pretty tight, righteous line there, but man, you're just not spending any time in his word. The only word you get is what I'm preaching to you. Boy, if you're depending on me alone to feed you spiritually, I don't know who taught you to do that. Maybe it's me, because I rarely ever say you should be getting into your word. I'm telling you now, you should be getting into your Bibles. You should be spending time in prayer. You need to abide. I can't abide for you. You need to abide in Christ. It's because we have forsaken the weekly gathering of the saints. This is one of the biggest ones. Easiest thing a Christian has to do in America is go to church, and yet it's the hardest thing a Christian has to do. I cannot figure this out. I will spend the rest of my days being baffled by how those who profess Christ just can't get to church regularly. I just don't understand it. Well, I got my nail appointment. It's, it's playoffs and football. We've given ourselves over to some kind of Sunday idol that is preventing us from being here. We need to self-evaluate. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal why we're not abiding in Christ. And we also need to know and trust that our divine vine dresser will lift us up and restore our close fellowship with the Lord Jesus so that we can become fruitful again. If we will just simply confess whatever sins we have, whatever it is that's, that's been messing with us or with our abiding, we will just confess those things to the Father. Man, he'll do his part to restore our fellowship so that we can bear fruit again. It's, it's not rocket science.
It could be a little bit harder for you because you've gotten yourself kind of addicted to something, a substance or pornography or something like that. Maybe it's not as simple as you just confessing that and moving on. For some believers, it is. And for some, it isn't. Well, we'll help you. You can confide in the elders here. I can't speak for all the elders, but I know that I myself had wrestled with that in the past. I'd love to help you. Or maybe it's because we are nominal like Judas Iscariot. Christian in name only. If this is the case, our first step is not to abide in Christ, but to repent and believe in Christ. You can't get to abiding first. You've got to repent and believe. We need to turn from unbelief, rejection of him, and trust in his person and work alone. Believe that he lived for our righteousness, that he died to pay our sin debt because only his blood had the value to cover it. Believe that he was buried to settle our accounts with God. Believe that he rose from the grave three days later, absolutely, totally victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for us. Do that. Repent of that unbelief and believe in him and who he is, and you'll be saved. Now you can begin to abide in him. It's a brand new year. Let's commit ourselves to drawing closer and closer to Jesus this year through consistent confession of our sins. We've got to keep short accounts with ourselves and with others. Consistent Bible reading and study, consistent prayer, consistent attendance on Sunday mornings. Make those things your goal in 19. You will draw closer and closer to Jesus. And I'll tell you what, it's going to result in greater fruitfulness in and through this little body of believers. Just the thought of this just blows fresh wind into my sails. Imagine the impact it could have in our homes and in our community if all of us are abiding in Christ and increasing in the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and obedience. Just ponder what kind of impact that would make in our own homes, in our church, in our community, if we were increasing in those fruits.